And we're going to start off this morning by doing an imagination exercise as we look at this very imaginative passage. And to get the context for this imagination exercise, you're going to need to take your bulletin and look inside the back cover of it where the Bible readings are. You'll see it says Bible readings there. And right under that, in bold, it gives you the context. Now, don't call out what the context is, but if you don't have a bulletin, you can look at someone who has a bulletin next to you and make sure you take a look at what the context is for this imagination exercise. All right, you got it? All right. So now imagine what I'm going to describe to you. As you gaze up at the possibilities, one stands out. It's chocolate, smooth as silk, running down an icy mound. It captures your imagination. You want it. This is the one. All right, now call out what I described. Syrup, horse, what? (laughs) Anybody else? Hot fudge, ice cream? December? Sunday, so we've got dessert, we've got horse. Uh, Let me explain what's going on here. Half of you in your bulletin were told that you were going to Friendly's to order dessert. And the other half were told you were going to a ranch in winter to buy a horse. Now, I, I share that to illustrate that what we see and what we hear depends on the set of glasses that we have on. And even though I described exactly the same thing to both groups, you heard something vastly different, didn't you, depending on which context you had. The lenses we put on makes a big difference in what we see and hear. And that is especially true with our passage this morning, Genesis chapter 1. What I'd like to suggest to you is that if you were taught, like I was, to put on your scientific lenses when reading Genesis 1 then you are going to mishear and to misunderstand what God is saying to us through this text. Because this text is not primarily about science. After all, as best we can tell, Genesis 1 was written sometime between 2,500 and 3,300 years ago, which was before Newton, before Galileo, before Copernicus and Kepler, long before Charles Darwin wrote The Origin of the Species. Which means Genesis 1 was not written to counteract the theory of evolution or to explain how the universe got here in modern scientific terms. Rather, it was written to combat some other views of how and why the universe came into being, views which were in fashion well over 2,000 years ago when Genesis 1 was written. These were views expressed and promoted by the creation stories of that time by peoples like the Babylonians, the Canaanites, the Egyptians. So as we look at our passage this morning, we're going to have to work hard to take off our modern scientific glasses and to put on a more appropriate set of lenses for hearing what Genesis 1 is trying to say to us. Lenses which have to do with with theology, with ancient religion, ancient literature, ancient uh, perspectives on creation. Now, I realize that we have a lot of scientific questions. 
which we want to find answers to in this passage. But I'm pretty sure that if Moses or, or whoever it was that wrote Genesis 1 were here today, he'd hold up his hands and he'd say, hold all those questions for a while. Because there's something more important that this passage wants to tell you. So let's see this morning if we can discover what that more important message is. We begin in verses 1 to 2 where we read that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now these words describe what the world was like when the seven days of creation began. Formless and empty, darkness over the deep, the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. Except for God's Spirit, the rest of this picture is one of utter chaos. There's a joke about these verses. It's about three men who are arguing over whose profession was first established on earth. And uh, mine was, the surgeon says, because uh, the Bible says Eve was made from carving a rib out of Adam. No, 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 says the engineer. An engineering job came before that. In six days, the earth was created out of chaos, and that is an engineering job. Ah, says the politician, but who created the chaos? <laughs> Which is actually a very good question to start with in Genesis 1. Who created the chaos? When God starts creating in verse 3, there isn't nothing there. There is an earth which is empty, barren, disorganized, and covered with deep chaotic waters. Who created the chaos? Now remember, we're going to have to resist reading this story with our science lenses on. We know from elsewhere in Scripture that God created everything out of nothing. We're not debating that here. We're not debating whether God really did create everything. We're just recognizing that Genesis 1 isn't telling the scientific story of how God made the universe out of nothing. Rather, in Genesis 1, the creation story starts with watery chaos. Genesis 1 is the story about what God did about the chaos. You see that? Well, before we see what God did, let's make sure we understand what the Bible means when it describes chaos. Again, we're not meant to have our science lenses on here, but rather our biblical theology lenses, because the Bible has a lot to say about chaos, and it regularly uses the images for chaos that we see in Genesis 1 here. So let's go through these images. First, formless. Formless suggests a, a trackless desert waste. It suggests a place where you can easily lose your way and perish. It also suggests no boundary lines, no up and down, no right and wrong, no light and dark, just, just a mixed up nebulous mess. Further, think of all those images, if we could have our first image, um, that we've seen in, in recent years in the aftermath of um, hurricanes and tsunamis. Let's see if we can get our image up here. That's all right. Are the slides in there? It doesn't want to show us. Oh, well. <laughs> it's chaos. We got chaos going, right? Aren't computers that way? All right, well, she may need to close the program or restart or whatever, and she'll 
catch up with us. Let, let me know when you're ready, and we'll, we'll get you oriented to where we're supposed to be if we can get them up. Otherwise, we just... No, that's the movie. Oh, are we switched maybe to the other um, viewing mode? Mickey, do you know? All right, well, we'll let the technical people figure it out, figure out the chaos. Um, but we all, we all know those images. We remember the images from, from the tsunamis in Asia, from the hurricane we had last year, the Jersey Shore, the, 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 the mixed-up mess of, of chaos. And, and you look at that, you think about that, and, and it's a situation which is just unlivable. Uh, it's unmanageable. It's, it's, a, it's a huge mess. That's the idea of formlessness. Empty means inhospitable to life. Empty means no life, no food, no pleasure, just empty. And you put that together. You put formlessness and empty together, and you get a picture um, like, like this picture of formless and empty from Jeremiah 4, 23 to 26. Just listen. You don't have to turn there. Jeremiah says, I looked on the earth, and behold, it was formless and empty. And to the heavens, and they had no light. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking, and all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, there were no humans, and all the birds of the heavens had fled. I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a wilderness, and all its cities were pulled down. Do you get the picture? That's chaos. The next image is darkness. Darkness practically suggests groping around. It suggests being disoriented, being lost, being ignorant. Morally, it suggests evil. Then we have the deep. Sometimes it's translated deep waters or or the abyss. In in Hebrew culture, this is a foreboding picture of, of watery chaos, of danger, perhaps even of evil. Are you getting the picture that's being described for us in the opening verses of Genesis? Not the scientific picture, but the theological picture of what the world was like before God started creating in verse 3. Now, there's one note of hope in verse 2, and that's that the Spirit of God was present, hovering over the surface of, of these chaotic waters. God was present and in control of the evil, of the chaos, of the disorder. In other words, the message of the opening of Genesis is that God is in control even of the chaos. There's no evil, no destructive force in the universe which is not under the Creator's complete command. And so when chaos and evil come into our lives, let's remember this picture of God's Spirit brooding over the tumultuous waters, ready to act, ready to create something good out of the chaos. The rest of the story then describes that action. Beginning in verse 3, God decisively takes over the situation. And for six days, God's activity is the center of the story. God is in complete command every step of the way. The chaos doesn't even put up a fight. To highlight God's active supremacy over the chaos, the story repeats God's activity each day of creation. Each day begins with an announcement by the narrator first. Then God said. This is followed every day by the divine, God's divine command. Let there be. 
This then is followed by a report. And it was so. Like an army general, God speaks and all reality instantly snaps to attention and responds in obedience to what God speaks. Then God names what he's created. God called. In Hebrew culture, to name something is to take authority over it. Next, God evaluates what he's created. And God saw that it was good. As the sovereign one, God alone has the wisdom and the authority to discern and to declare whether something is good or not. And because it's God's very nature to be good, everything God makes is good. Finally, God blesses all the life that God created and God blessed. God blesses all the living things and God tells them to be fruitful and to increase and to fill the earth. Now, don't, not uh, what I'm about to say next, don't think in modern political terms, but think of in, in deeply more profound terms, if anyone is pro-life, it's God, based on these verses. God is for abundance and for vitality and for life. Life is, is a good thing, and God wants lots of it. So as we look back over the sweep of, of creation, we see that God is very much active and in charge. Creation is all about God and God's initiative going to bat against the chaos and replacing it with something very, very good. Creation is all about God, and as a result, it's all very, very good. Now let's look at the individual days of creation and see in more detail how this plays out. And again, we're going to have to resist putting our scientific lenses on. We're going to have to keep on the lenses of theology, uh, of ancient biblical literature. And as we do, we discover that the seven days of creation are carefully and artfully structured to explain how God took a formless and an empty world and turned it into a formed and ordered world filled with good things. Hopefully this diagram will help us to see these days of creation. We read it from bottom to top and then from left to right. Notice first that on the first three days, God forms the formlessness. God separates. God brings order out of the chaos. And so on day one, God creates light and separates light from darkness. On day two, God creates sky and separates the waters above from the waters below. On day three, God causes the dry ground to appear and separates the dry ground from the seas. And so the good creator gives us light instead of just darkness, gives us sky and weather instead of just watery chaos, gives us dry ground instead of just seas. Then on the second set of three days, God goes back and fills the emptiness of the earth that he's created. And each filling corresponds to a previous separating. On day four, God fills the, the light and the darkness with sun, moon, and stars. On day five, God fills the sky above and the waters below with birds and with fish. On day six, God fills the land with animals and with people. First, God forms the formlessness. Then, God fills the emptiness. The Creator brings order and structure and distinction out of chaos and mess and muddle 
Then God brings life and beauty and goodness and sustenance out of emptiness and barrenness. When God, the good creator, is done, the chaos, the dark, eerie, tumultuous roar of the waters has been replaced with sunshine, flowers, good food, birds singing, everything safe and good. But God also does one more thing to ensure that chaos need never again threaten or spoil his creation. And to see that, we have to take a closer look at the sixth day of creation. Because there's something special about the sixth day. Something so special that the the writer bursts into poetry. The first poem in the Bible celebrates the creation of people on the sixth day in verse 27. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God created mankind. Some of the older translations say man, but it's man in the sense of human, not man in the sense of male. Both male and female are made in the image of God. And because men and women are created in God's image, we are given a special role to play in keeping the creation good and keeping the chaos and the evil at bay. To understand this, we have to put on another set of glasses, the cultural glasses of an Israelite living 3,000 years ago or so, whenever this text was written. And if we asked such an an Israelite what an image was, because we're made in God's image, if we asked her what an image was, she would have no trouble answering us because images were as much a part of her culture as cell phones are a part of ours. Our Israelite would tell us that an image is a statue or an idol. She would tell us about pagan temples that she knew and how each temple had an image or an idol of the God that was worshipped there in that temple. She would tell us that the image represented the God that it was patterned after. The image wasn't an identical copy of that God, but rather it was a stylized depiction of what that God was like. And the image was believed to have the spirit of the God in it. And so the image was able to to represent that God and to rule on its behalf. Our Israelite friend would also tell us that in her culture, people believed that kings were were also images of the gods. People believed that that, um, kings were were representatives of gods and and ruled on, on the gods' behalves. Finally, the Israelite would tell us that kings would also put images of themselves up around their kingdom to to represent them in places where they could not be present in person. Now, at this point, we might get concerned and ask the Israelite if she believes all this pagan stuff that she's telling us. And she would say, no, of course not. Genesis 1 teaches us that there's only one God who made the heavens and the earth to be his temple. And all the other gods with their idols are just cheap, false imitations of the one true God who made everything and of that creator's real image. And then the Israelite would conclude, probably with a smile on her face and wonder in her voice, that the real images of God are you and me. She'd explain to us first that we represent God on earth. She'd say that that when she looks at us, she sees something of what God is like. And that means that we're very significant. 
Second, she would tell us that, that to be made in God's image means that we have God's life or spirit within us. She'd remind us that we're dependent on God for our very life and that we are nothing without our creator whose spirit is within us. Third, our Israelite would, would remind us that to be made in God's image means, among other things, that we are to rule on God's behalf. She'd tell us that only pagans believe that, that the king alone is worthy enough to be in the image of God and to rule on behalf of the gods. But the true God says that we are all significant, that we are all worthy, that we are all called to the awesome responsibility of ruling on God's behalf in the world because we are all made in the image of God. We have a high calling. Well, at this point, we could thank our Israelite friend and, and send her on her way back into the, the past because now we understand our role in God's creation. God created the world and made it good. God pushed back and restrained the powers of chaos and darkness. And then God delegated to all of us and everyone out there the responsibility to rule the earth for him, to keep the world good, and to keep the chaos and evil at bay. Just as ancient kings would put images of themselves around their kingdom to represent them, so God has placed images of himself around his kingdom to represent him. And just as ancient peoples would, would build a temple to the God that they worshipped and would put an image of that God in the temple to represent it, so God has built the whole creation to be his temple and has put his image in that temple to represent him, his images. So now we know what it means to be human. Now we know who we are and why we're here and what life is about. The sad thing is that instead of faithfully ruling on God's behalf and, and administering his kingdom, we have all rebelled against God and done our own thing. Even worse, we have denied the wonderful reality that the whole creation and all of life is about the creator. And instead, as we've decided, as we saw two weeks ago, we've decided that it's all about us. That's why sin is nothing less than cosmic treason punishable by death. We have embraced the darkness and the chaos, and we've done plenty to, to undo the good work of creating that God has done. And one day, Scripture tells us our, our Creator will, will once again sweep away the, 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 the chaos and the evil with it. And in the process, God will, will have to sweep away everyone who has sinned and taken part in, in letting the evil and the chaos back into the world, everyone who aligns themselves with the chaos. And that's why the sinful attitude, it's all about me, is a collision course with death and destruction. That's also why Christ came as a king to restore God's kingdom, to restore God's rule, and to offer forgiveness and pardon to all who will follow him. To restore the image of God in us. To restore us to our places as kings and queens with Christ. 
so that we can once again work with God to make this world a place that is good and not chaos. That incidentally is why scripture calls those who are in Christ a royal priesthood. Well, before we move on and look at the seventh day of creation, let's pause for a few more minutes and and get practical about this area of being kings and queens over God's creation. In verse 28, the first commandment in the Bible, God gives us our task. It says, God blessed humanity and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds and of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the earth. So there's two parts to this task that we've been given. First, we're to fill the earth. Big families are are very biblical, and so is immigration, at least in places where overpopulation isn't already a problem. Second, we're told also to subdue the creation and to rule over it which does not mean to exploit the creation. After all, it's not ours to exploit. It's God's creation. It's God's temple, and he made it very, very good. So what does it mean to rule over God's creation? Well, it has to do with the work that we do. Work itself is not a curse. Work is a high calling. It's the toil and the difficulty of work, which the Bible says becomes a curse. Now, we have two choices about the way we go about our work. There's the it's all about me attitude to work. Um, or there, there's, there's the it's all about God attitude where we see ourselves as, as delegated stewards and, and representatives of um, what the creator has given us. The all about me approach takes um, many forms. We might just work for the money to be financially secure or to achieve a certain standard of living. We might work for our own satisfaction or to increase our power or our prestige. Or or we might work because we're just addicted to work and we can't stop. Um, Or we might hate work and only work because we have to or not work at all if we don't have to. Uh, These are all, it's all about me approaches to work. Um, And we're all very familiar with them, right? But what would it look like to put our creator back at the center of creation, and let everything, even our work, be all about the Creator. What does it look like to take up our role as images of God, kings and queens, representing God's rule in God's creation? Well, to answer that question, let me, let me give you a motivation and a method. For the, It's all about the Creator approach to work. The motivation is to realize it's all about God and that we are not working primarily for our own benefit, although there's benefit that we and our family accrues from our work, but it's not primarily about our own benefit. Rather, we are working to further our Creator's right, rightful reign over the earth. And we're working to bring glory to God and not to ourselves. So here's an image of uh, how maybe we would think about our work, just as an abstract image here. Think of it like whatever your job is, God is handing you a hunk of rock with a diamond buried in it. And, and your job is, is to chip away at the rock, to, to expose the diamond, to, to cut the diamond, to polish it, to set it in a nice piece of jewelry because that's what it's there for. 
And then not to keep it, but to offer it back to God as a gift. There's a motivation for how you think about your work, whatever your work is. Our motivation in our work is to please and to honor our creator with our work. Second, our method involves imitating the way that God works. God works by forming and filling, and much of our work involves that too. I remember several years ago, um, I was volunteering at a program which, which fed the homeless, and um, we would get lots of, of cans and uh, boxes of food from Safeway. And um, uh, many of them were dented. They were missing labels or, or something. So we had to sort the good food from the bad food. And then we had to take the good ones and we had to sort them into starches and vegetables and meats, etc., so that each bag that was given out had some of each. And this was fun at first, but after a few hours on the first day, um, it, it got to be a real drag. <laughs> um, but one day, uh, as I was doing this um, job, um, it struck me that as I was working, I was actually bringing order out of chaos. That um, as a result of the work that we volunteers were doing, a hostile situation where people were, were hungry and yet food was being thrown out, that hostile situation was becoming a situation that was bringing life as we were bringing order out of chaos. And this paradigm shift really helped me to start thinking of my work as imitating God because I made in God's image. Um, and a lot of our work involves forming or, or separating. When we wash the dishes, we separate the usable plate from the dirty food, right? Um, accountants bring order out of disorganized finances. Um, doctors bring the clarity of a diagnosis out of a jumble of symptoms. Um, some of you, when you clean your rooms, really bring order out of chaos. Um, other work involves not forming, but filling. Uh, teachers, among other things, fill minds with, um, with knowledge and wisdom. Um, artists fill canvases with color and beauty. Uh, factory workers fill stores with useful products. Those who um, cook for us fill empty plates with good food. It's all about God and not about us. And we are made in the image of God. And if that's the case, then our method, the method of our work, involves imitating our creator, um, filling or, or bringing order to chaotic situations and filling empty places with what's good and beautiful so that our creator's glorified and so that life can flourish. All right, let's finish quickly with the seventh day of creation, the climax of the story in Genesis 2, 2 and 3. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. And so on the seventh day, God rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. In the pagan creation myths, after the gods had created the world, they would build a temple to live in and they would hold a grand celebration in that temple. In, in Genesis, we learn that after the, two, the true God creates, God celebrates by instituting a day of rest. The Sabbath day is like God's temple. It's a day to celebrate creation. 
That's why for the Israelites, the Sabbath wasn't a solemn day or a boring day. It was rather always a feast day. It was a, a day for celebration and for refreshment. And so stepping back now, look how the whole creation story moves from chaos to rest. That's the kind of God we serve, a a God who takes destruction and chaos and turns it into rest and celebration. A life which says it's all about me and, and tries to do it all on its own is a life which tends back toward chaos. And eventually it ends in destruction. But a life which recognizes that it's all about the creator is a life marked by goodness and beauty and life and in the end finds rest. So which way are you living? Are you living for yourself? Or are you living for your creator? How you live makes all the difference. And so I want to give us a chance to respond as we pray now. You you may want to pray along with this prayer. God, too often I've had on the wrong set of glasses. I've been living very often like it's all about me. I get pushed into that, sucked into that by the world. But I'm reminded more fully that life and this world are yours, that it's all meant to be about you, God. God, I'm sorry. Please forgive me through Jesus Christ. God, I want to give my life back to you. Tame the chaos of my life. Bring light into my darkness. Fill my emptiness with goodness, with beauty. And help me to imitate you, to reflect your image. Help me to be a king, a queen, a steward of your creation. Help me to bring order out of chaos, to fill this world with goodness and light. Amen.